Today on the Rotten Righteous Podcast, I don't even have a question for you. It's just, if you don't listen to the end of this episode, you'll be missing out on some of the funniest things you're ever going to hear. Hello and welcome back to Rotten or Righteous. It is a weekly podcast where me and a couple of friends of mine get together and watch faith-based media and rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. If whatever we're reviewing earns a rating of 6 to 10, then it is righteous, which means like the banker in Monopoly, whenever somebody lands on a question mark, you should give it a chance. However... However, if the show, book, or movie scores a 1 to 5, then it is rotten, which means you should make, like, the no sign and a deck of Uno cards and skip it. I'm your host, Zach Geiler, and with me is my co-host and very good friend, Scott Judge, and joining us is a returning guest all the way from Guam, Luke Taylor. Before we get into the movie, uh, or the television show today and reviewing it, there's a story that I need to share with you guys. And you both asked me, how's Kentucky doing? And I, I couldn't answer fully because I've been saving this for when we were recording. Uh, I'll tell you exactly how Kentucky is going. I love it down here. I love the people. But I didn't realize how backwoods this area of Kentucky that we're living in in South Central really is until today. When I got in the car to, to run to the building to pick something up really quick. And on my way, Kelsey was listening to a radio station, a country radio station called The Hoss. And... <laughs> It was still their morning zoo time, I guess you could call it. And the whole way there, there was like a 15-minute segment all about the best ways to cook and prepare turtle. <laughs> I've heard turtles too. I've heard turtles good too. I'm not I'm not docking it. I'm just saying you're not going to find that up in Columbus. You know, WCOL is not going to take a break going, well, here's some fresh possum. Let me tell you how to fix it up. That's true. You will find that in Guam though. Well, I don't know what they eat in Guam. Is that one of them cat and dog eating places? No, no, that's where my other brother is. But uh, they'll they'll eat they'll eat a lot of stuff here that we wouldn't eat back home. Like what? Like anything that comes out of the ocean. Like really anything. People. <laughs> <laughs> Mermaids, merman, Scott? swamp creature. That leads me to an important question. Uh, Scott, would you eat a dog? I'm sorry, would I eat a knock? A dog. <laughs> D-O-G. A dog. No, I would not eat a dog. Would you eat a dog? Answer Probably. wisely. I wow. think I would. I think, like, not like I'd go out and, and, you know, find a dog now in America and be like, oh, look at this cute little Pekingese. But I, you know, if I was in a country where that was the culture and it was like on a stick somewhere and they gave me a sample, I'd probably try it just to say that I've had it. All right. So besides learning about uh, how to cook radio or, or radio, how to cook turtle, which by the way, in case you're wondering is you set your pressure cooker to 10 pounds and just let it go to its fall off the bone tender. Isn't, <laughs> isn't Kentucky where the turtle man is from? You remember the show? They had Turtle Man. He would go out and like catch wild beasts or rodents or or things that nobody else could catch. Who were being a nuisance to their farms or houses. They called the Turtle Man. Production location: Lebanon, Kentucky. Yeah. Turtle Man. Turtle Man. He would be from Kentucky. The uh, to the um, stats we're getting here. 
on where people are listening from. No one's listening in Guam, Luke. Thanks for the advertising. But <laughs> the majority of our the majority of our listeners are from Kentucky. So in an effort not to alienate our uh, core demographic, I will say that it is beautiful down here and I love it and it's a slower pace than Columbus and my gray hairs are, are going away. I've noticed that. I was looking at the mirror the other day. I had a gray beard hair. It just sucked right back in. Now that we're done with the uh, talking about turtles and Kentucky and how wonderful it is, let's move on with the review. We open up with Mary looking for Jesus during that famous scene where Jesus is a 12-year-old boy being brought to Jerusalem for the Passover for the first time, and he gets stuck in, uh, or he doesn't get stuck, he gets left behind. He's at the temple, and it takes him three days uh, to realize that he's gone and find him again. Which, on a parenting note, I don't know if, Luke, you'll be able to relate to this because you refuse to have children, but Scott and I, I will say that as we were going through this, I feel really good about being a dad because I've never lost my son for three days. I've never lost mine for three days. But I have misplaced them once or twice. So Mary's looking for Jesus, and they finally find him. And um, now, there's this scene here for me, I have something that I really like about it, but also something that I really did not like about it. There's a lot to talk about in this episode. The last couple episodes, Scott, we've had it pretty easy because there wasn't a lot that we could pick at and kind of uh, uh, take out to the woodshed. But let's start on the positive note. The woman who played Mary, first of all, didn't age for 20 years. Did you notice that? Not a, not a bit. I mean, not a bit. She looked like a 50-year-old woman back when she was a 30-year-old woman. That is talent. <laughs> it's Jerusalem soapstone. But I will say there was a, there was, I, I liked her reaction because you could tell as she found Jesus, you could see that that stress that Jesus caused mixed with the relief of finding him and that anger of why in the world did this kid not stay with us? And that would have been the natural reaction to have if you haven't seen your kid for three days. So I will give them that. They played that very well. But the thing that I do not like is what Joseph says. You were in the temple? It was incredible, really. You should have seen him. He was teaching when I found him. The rabbis, the scribes, the scholars, they could not believe their ears. They barely let us be. Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? And Joseph is like, he was teaching them in the temple. No, he wasn't. That's not what the Bible tells us. And that's a common misconception that, that they were just enraptured with Jesus because Jesus was sitting there telling them all these lessons. Listen to the actual text in Luke 2, 47 through 48. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And the NIV actually translates this very well. And I normally don't go to the NIV for obvious reasons because I don't want a uh, summary or somebody's idea of what the Bible says. I just want the Bible. But the NIV does get it closer to the original... The original text. Uh, 47 and 48 in the NIV. Listen to this. If you back up into 46, they found him in the temple. 
That's right. That's what I wanted. 46. After yeah, three days, 46. they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So the scene that we're actually given in the text isn't one of Jesus standing in front of all these old rabbis that are, are gathering information and teaching them things, but instead Jesus is interested in learning, and he is answering the questions that the rabbi has given him, and he's providing feedback. The reason why they were amazed is because we have a 12-year-old kid here whose sole interest at that time, and they were able to keep his attention for over a day, his sole interest at that time was learning about God. They weren't amazed because he was teaching them. They were amazed because Jesus cared about the Father. He cared about learning stuff. And so it bugs me whenever people get this misconception that Jesus was sitting there holding his own TED Talk in the temple as everyone was gathered around and listening to him. I guess that does not enrage me as much as it does it does you. Well, I guess it's not, it's not so much enrage... As it's just wrong. <laughs> I'm not mad, you know. I just I just want them to be right. They have been right about so many things. So many little things. Yeah, and they because have. of that, they've caused me to look at this show with a microscope. And when they get something blatantly wrong, I'm going to call them the, out the, on it. The standard's been elevated for what right. we expect out of them because of what they've done in the previous episodes. But you're right. In the in the show, they find him in the in the uh, in the street. You know, Mary's calling out for him, and then Joseph and Jesus come by. But according to the text, after three days, they found him in uh, the temple, in the midst, listening and and asking questions. Uh, and you know, and as you said, the amazement was the understanding they had. He's wanting to learn more about God from there, uh, from them, and they were amazed that what he already knew. Uh, uh, when he was answering those questions, but yeah, we've really, we've really, and you're right, Zach, we've really elevated the expectation within the show because of what we've seen in everything up to this point, because it's been, it's been pretty accurate. Well, and, and to say that, um, that Jesus was teaching them at 12 kind of defeats the purpose that Jesus grew like all of us grew, right? Mm -hmm. He grew in, in stature and wisdom Meaning that even his knowledge, yes, he was the son of God, but he still had to work to learn the scriptures. Jesus was interested in learning. The reason why he was so knowledgeable of the scriptures is because he applied himself. He is the example of what we should strive to be in our spiritual lives. And you take that away when you make Jesus this biblical prodigy at the age of 12. And yes, he could understand some things. But he didn't. He wasn't just gifted all the information. He knew the scriptures, and he did that through visiting the tabernacles and whatnot. And maybe I'm off base, and I just came to this conclusion falsely. But I don't think that I am. I don't know. I think it's hard to say how much he knew, you know, and when he knew it, and how much of that was miraculous and how much wasn't. But he, I guess. I, I mean, I guess reading Luke 2:47, where it says, and all that heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I guess depending on the way you interpret his answers and what those answers were, I feel like you kind of take it either way. I don't think so. I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, and this is, I mean, I've, I've been amazed as just a teacher of the Bible for just a few years. Like, like, uh, uh, from, from Elm Grove, Scott. Mm -hmm. When you first met her, 
and she talked to you and some of her understanding of things and, and, and everything. She was like 10 years old, but yet she was able to grasp some spiritual truths that were a little bit beyond what I would expect a 10-year-old to grasp. As I left our, my first conversation I had with her, I went to Kelsey and I said, that little girl is amazing. You know, yeah. her, her understanding, her, the way she's accepting things, the way she's answering questions is amazing. I think that's what we're looking at here. We have a 12-year-old boy who, like any 12-year-old boy, normally wouldn't be interested in sitting in a temple for three days. I mean, I'm not interested in sitting in a temple for three days. You know, here's a 12-year-old that all he wants to do is sit there and study and learn. I'll take your interpretation. I accept it. Hi there. This is Zach from the Editing Bay. Uh, at this point in our discussion, it really broke down to us pulling up different uh versions, and I use the word versions very loosely, of the Bible, different interpretations, some of the more humorous ones, which culminated in me reading this passage from The Word on the Street, which is a false interpretation by a man named Rob Lacey, who tried to reach the youth uh, of the world by uh, writing this and writing, rewriting the Bible using slang and, and other sorts of things. So I hope you enjoyed this particular passage. So you basically quoted the message. I'm Do you preach up, out of the message? No, I preach out of Rob Lacey's word on the street. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, some expert interpretation to deal with this. You don't even call Luke Luke. It's just called the Liberator. The Liberator. <laughs> says <laughs> they track him to the, down to the foyer of God's HQ he's sitting there he's sitting there with the teaching staff soaking everything up and asking profound questions the whole crowd are stunned by his grip on spiritual things and the answers he's coming out with his parents, parents spot him and break up the seminar how could you do this to us his mom asks your dad and I have been looking all over worried sick that really, I think that supports my my. Position. I think it does. Unfortunately, I, I say unfortunately. I think it does too because they broke up the seminar as if he was conducting it. <laughs> That's true. No, his mom broke up the seminar. <clears throat> he was the he was the, he was doing the TED talk though. So after that opening scene, <laughs> we get the credits, and then um, we see that there's a wedding going on. And Mary comes to help her friend. There's not much to say about that first um, scene. And then we pick up where last episode left off. And that was Nicodemus walking into John the Baptizer's cell. John had been imprisoned by the Romans. And uh, uh, they, were, they were talking. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about the conversation that these two were, happen or, were having. Uh, uh, they came in and Nicodemus obviously is on this individual quest to find out about miracles. He's still trying to figure out how in the world Mary Magdalene went from, you know, the, the chick from the exorcist to mother Teresa. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on with these miracles. And so he goes to John and asks basically if, uh, he was the one that was working the miracles. And, um, John was kind of a jerk to him. Miracles. Yes, John. Signs and wonders. From who? You. <laughs> Are you adding those to my list of infractions? I'm just going to be bit. real honest. 
that, that John was not the most warm and appealing person in the world. True. And it appeared to me that John, John's thinking is that it was uh, the Sanhedrin that had him arrested. I mean, and that's kind of dumb. You would think that after spending a few days in prison, you'd know who your captors were. Yeah. But I saw him being angry with Nicodemus from the get-go, thinking it was him that had him, uh, had him placed into jail in the first place. But yeah, he was he was very standoffish when he came to talk to him. And, and you know, all those things I think we read about in the Scripture. And remember, John had called him, uh, they refer to it as snakes, but the Bible calls it a brood of vipers. Uh, so he he's you know but, well aware of the Pharisees. But we gotta ask the question: Was John was John saying that stuff because he was prejudiced towards the Pharisees, or was he saying that stuff because he was trying to get the Pharisees to repent and they were kind of scoffing to the side as he was preaching? I don't see oh, John I, being being prejudiced towards no, the Pharisees when he called them that. But then again, I'm also reading into the scripture. This is my opinion. Take it with a grain of salt. But the way the show proclaims it is John is just hates him because he's a Pharisee right out of the gate. I think as the conversation goes on, you kind of see him warm up a little bit. But I think I think it's understandable that when a Pharisee walks into his cell and, you know, Nicodemus doesn't put on the face that he's there to find the truth necessarily. He has to get in, down to his real intentions about what he's there for. You know, he's he's like, oh, I'm, I'm here for, you know, Roman politics and things like that. That was his first answer. And then he, uh, so, I, I mean, I think it's understandable that he's standoffish to him because he probably just automatically stereotypes him in with all of the other Pharisees and all of the other Pharisees were were against his message. And, it, and you know, John John is a man like anybody else. And so, I mean, even as a preacher, um, when people who are generally hostile to us come up to us, a lot of times, I mean, I, I feel like we would respond the same way. You know, if somebody's treated us poorly in the past or their group of people has in the past, and then they approach us, we're probably thinking that they're going to do the same thing to us again. And then when he realizes, oh, you're actually here for another reason, he, he warms up to him a little bit. Yeah, and I kind of felt like John saw through some of that in the beginning, too, that that didn't believe that that was the motive for why he was coming. Yeah, I mean, he kept kind of bringing it back to why have you really got here, and Nicodemus was like, I'm here because it would set a bad precedent if we allowed Rome to punish uh, our criminals for breaking Jewish law. Which, by the way, uh, I kind of liked that foreshadowing a little bit. I know that... Mm -hmm. uh, how much do they hate Jesus? Well, Nicodemus kind of nailed it on the head. They didn't want Rome to take care of their problems because if they allowed Rome to take care of their problems, that's just a little bit more power that Rome took away from the Pharisees, and that's the last thing that they wanted. And so for him to say, I'm here because if you're going to get punished, you're going to get punished for breaking uh, uh, our laws by us, not for breaking our laws by Rome. But then, you know, three years later, they're sitting there taking Jesus to Rome saying, we don't care. We don't yeah. care, just just kill him. And that was kind of interesting mm -hmm. to me. I'll, I'll give him that. Um, and then Paul, or, or, and then John says something really interesting uh, that I highlighted. It was just something that I liked. Um, when Nicodemus and John at the beginning are kind of having this tiff back and forth, and Nicodemus is kind of giving up on John, and John goes, You would have labeled Moses a lunatic for talking to a shrub. I really liked mm -hmm. that as well, because they are, they're just so quick to... Uh, to just write off anything 
supernatural or special or anybody that's coming from God. And, he and also, Jesus said kind of something real similar with, uh, you know, he says when John's locked up in prison and, and the Pharisees and the people around him, he said, um, gives that illustration of John came in the wilderness, not eating and drinking. And you told him that he was crazy, you know, and a lunatic. And then the son of man comes eating and drinking. And you say that he's a drunkard and a wine bearer. So it's like mm-hmm. you've had two, two pictures of the, the message of the kingdom come to you. And you've, you've written them both off as crazy people. Right. Do you remember when Caesar traveled through Judea? Yes. He sent all these men to clear logs and debris for the coming king. Make straight the way for the king, they'd shout. Prepare the way. The roads in Jerusalem do not have the same problem, but I remember the... He asks Nicodemus, because John is there and he knows that his job is to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, in the first century, preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for the king, they would literally send workers out into the route, whatever this king was going to travel down, and they would build a new road for the king. One that was straight, one that was level, one that was taken care of. There was no bumps in it, making it as comfortable as possible for the king. And that's the idea that we're supposed to be getting here for uh, uh, John going out and preparing the way. And he brings up that point to him about, uh, do you remember when Caesar Caesar traveled through Judea and he sent all those men to clear logs and debris uh, for the coming king to make straight the way for the king? Uh they went out to prepare, and that's exactly what John was doing. And so it was kind of cool to see them bring that image uh, to the show because, like I said, I've been studying the Bible full-time for, for five, six years now, and I've never put that together until I just did this study. And it was just kind of cool to see that little snippet brought out. I didn't know they did that either. No, I don't feel so dumb. That's how I, I measure my intelligence. Does Luke know this? <laughs> Does um, Luke know yeah, you can certainly feel there's a lot of a lot of tension in that scene, and and Nicodemus is just, and I would be too on a quest to know and to understand what has happened to Mary, and he cannot figure out, and he's trying to search anywhere he can, and knowing about what John has said now, he's going to try to get that information from him, but he's even just confused about what John is saying. Well, because I think at one point he even said, "Should we be praying, preparing the way for you, John?" Uh, and uh, trying to to understand, and then he uh, accuses him of blasphemy uh, of the law, of the Torah, uh, and what he's speaking within that. And uh, you know, Jesus Jesus has come. John recognizes it, and Nicodemus just doesn't know what's going on. Well, you got to understand too. This is this has got to be a big culture shock for Nicodemus because he's going from. You know, being the person that everybody looks up to, being the the smartest guy, the most respected guy in the room. And, and you know, the more I'm thinking about this scene, the more I'm going to go ahead and say the exact opposite thing of what I just said. And that is, uh, uh, you know, Nicodemus, he's not used to somebody that doesn't respect him because he's wearing that black vestment, that he's wearing that mm-hmm. black robe. He's used to people bowing and getting out of his way and doing whatever he says. And now he has somebody here that doesn't care about what's on the outside. He's looking at what the inside is. But at the same time, John needs to understand that you have uh, a, a Pharisee that's coming in here who wants to know the truth. He wants to talk about miracles. He's not there to spit at them or make fun of them or, or try to cause them trouble. I don't know. I, I Maybe the scene just wasn't very well acted. And that's why I don't like it. Maybe John just wasn't that well acted. Do you think that they're trying to play John as like, I mean, he lived in the wilderness, right? So he's not like, 
he's not like a, a social a socialite i mm-hmm. guess so i mean he's he's like coarse his discourse with people is not always as smooth or polite as maybe it should be but i don't know if they're trying to con- you know communicate any of that because he's obviously like a a different kind of human being well the one thing i noticed he's the first person in this entire show that has a stain on his tooth mm-hmm. like his front two teeth were gross Everyone else has like, well, and it's just little things like that. And I think they're done on purpose and we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, these little details that come out, but I mean, yeah, John lived in the wilderness, but his entire life he knew, or maybe not his entire life, but he knew that he was going to be a spokesman for God. So there had to have been, yes, he was very blunt and that's what I respect about him. But don't you think there had to have been some level of couthness? There, I don't understand why they're trying to portray him as like the Palestinian Charles Manson sitting there in the cave with the worst beard in the entire world, sitting there going, <laughs> you know. And he he looks that way too. I mean, I was just as we're talking here, I'm thinking, would either one of you guys approach this character as we see him with his looks if you came across him uh, on the street or stranded? But you know, they've they have they have portrayed that character as. You know, what was it Peter called him in the last episode? Crazy John. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you see him in those eyes and that beard. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't even go near this man. And that's a horrible thing, particularly in light of the fact what he was doing and who he was. But not uh, only that, but, but, but that's on me. I like John. I like the character. He was a little crazy, but I, I feel like he, he, he would have been. A little weird, maybe, maybe not super weird, just, but I, mean, I, just, I question your definition of weird, Zach, because I mean, I mean, I just do. I bet you would like Manson too. You're lucky you were born <laughs> in the '90s and not back in the '60s. You'd have found yourself at Waco and the Manson family, and we'd have to <laughs> instead of Jeffrey Dahmer, we'd be like, "Hey, did you hear Luke Taylor, the member of the Manson family? Yeah, he converted to Christianity in prison." <laughs> but John, John would be like he he sits out in the wilderness. He eats locusts, right? Like mm-hmm. he's a he's kind of a weird guy, and the like his coarseness. You think about he's supposed to be like the Old Testament prophets, right? The Old Testament mm-hmm. prophets, I don't think were. I mean, look at like Ezekiel or look at I mean almost any of the prophets. Like they're weird guys. They had to have been weird guys. They're just doing all kinds of stuff that God gives them to do that are just like out of the ordinary. So I don't know. I, I liked him. So after the meeting with John, we are given a really gross close-up of Eden's feet. First, uh, look, they're, they're, she's stomping grapes. I, I get it. That's what people did and still do. I understand it. I've got a thing with feet. I'm, I don't like them. I hate feet. My least favorite part, I don't even like my own feet. And so, I don't know, I almost threw up right there thinking about them drinking foot juice. But, uh... As but the water is, like, running out and you know that it's touched her feet. Yeah, yeah it's just washed them, though. gross. I know, but we, we were, were literally were just talking a few episodes about how they'd be, like, stepping in, 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 in camel crap as they're walking down the road, and now you're telling me they're washing their feet and stomping on grapes. It's gross. It's gross to think about. <laughs> But probably true to reality. Well, I'm sure it is, but it's still gross. You didn't have a feet problem. 
So, so Simon comes up to her. She's stomping on these grapes and tells her that he couldn't catch fish all night. And then uh, a teacher came and he caught all the fish and they took care of all the debts and everything's awesome. And uh, he tells her that he met the Messiah. And then Simon tells her about his calling, about the fact that Jesus wants him to follow her. And then she kind of turns her back and, and cries a little bit. And, and Simon thinks that she's upset. But then Mary goes, I'm not upset. Get out of the house, bro. Let's go. This is awesome. This is what I've wanted. And yeah, I liked that scene. It wasn't a bad scene uh, at the beginning. You didn't like the crying part. You didn't like no, the somebody no, not sees the, something no, the crying, you. The crying part was fine. I liked that because we uh-huh. set up that character arc before that at one point Simon was this really faithful person, but eventually he stopped trusting God and started relying on himself, and that was all the trouble that she was getting into. And the fact that he's coming back so excited that he found the Messiah willing to give up fishing and following him, you know, that's what she wants. She wants her faithful husband back. Yeah. So that makes yeah, sense. I really liked that. No, I thought, yeah, I thought it was a good scene, too. But you got to see Peter's feet, too, which also upsets you, right? Well, <laughs> here's the thing. As soon as that entire scene was done, that, that whole nice exchange about her crying and, and wanting him to go, it takes a real sharp left turn into Creepy Town that I did not enjoy. So are you going to help me? I actually could watch you do that all day. Wash your feet. We leave for Ghana today. What's in Ghana? A wedding. What does the wedding have to do with the liberation of Israel? I'm about to find out. Come on. Don't you think our wedding was a kind of liberation? From your fear that I would be bald. Oh, my father is nearly blind. (laughs) (laughs) Remember how cold it was? No. Remember Andrew's toast? Remember the rabbi lost his place? No. What? He made everyone stand up and please be seated. Twice in a row, you don't remember? What I will remember for the rest of my life is lifting your veil. I'd fight tigers for that memory. You'd fight tigers? Well. Unless it was as cold as our wedding day right before the sun came up and you got tangled in my chupa. <laughs> I, I do remember. <laughs> what, the, the romantic uh, banter? Dude, okay, look, we talked about this. We like how they're being real in the previous episodes. This was too real. This was gross. This was like, <laughs> this was disgusting. I hated this so much. <laughs> I was watching this episode alone by myself, and I was looking around for somebody's eyes to cover. Like, it was gross. It was gross, gross, gross. Gross, 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 gross. And she's like, I wasn't that he's, troubled by it. She's like, would you, would you, she's like, hey, do you want to come in here and help? And he's like, I could watch you stomp on grapes all day. <laughs> well, what does that say about Simon? That's messing my, with my mind. I, look, we've already discussed that uh, uh, my mind gets stuck on weird things, okay? I, I admit that my spectrum mind and its ADHD stuff gets stuck on weird things. But how is that your thing? That you want to watch your wife stomp on grapes? Like you sit there and go, this is my idea of entertainment. 
said he's stomping on grapes with her, Zach. It's no, the, no, that was before he stepped into the tub. He's looking at his wife, and she's like, "You want to come in here? The grapes are warm because of my because of my bunions." And then he's like, "No, I'm just gonna stand out here and watch you stomp some grapes, baby." Ooh, yeah, you like how I squished oh. this one between my toes? This little piggy went to the grape town. It's gross. <laughs> You're the only one who, who thought this I, thing. I, I thought it was I thought it was just a moment in which it appears that, that uh, Peter and Eden are going to resolve some of the issues that are going on with them. She loves him. He loves her. It's it's a, a precious moment that'll live in their life forever as they stomp the grapes out together and reminisce about their wedding day. <laughs> I mean, Peter's like not like I think part of part of Peter's uh, uh, character is like they're he's supposed to be a little bit like odd, especially in his relationship with his wife. Like he's just like a kooky guy, right? Dude, I'm a kooky guy. I'm not. Oh, it was gross. It wasn't that. It, I thought it was good. I liked it. Mm-mm, it made I it was, it was humanizing. It was humanizing. It was and, uh, vomit inducing. It was. <laughs> you need to go home and tell your wife. I promise you. I promise you. If I ever accidentally swallow poison, I'm not reaching for Epicac. I'm just gonna be like, get me episode five of the Chosen. We're gonna take <laughs> care of this right here and right now. Hey, Zach, don't you ever rub Kelsey's feet? No, I do not. Never. Never. <laughs> And never once have I walked into the house. And if I ever walked in the house, she was stomping on grapes. My first thought would be like, what are you doing? Stop doing that. That's gross. Where'd you get all these grapes? Does she what get barefoot you? around you at all? Well, yeah. But it's not like we're rubbing our feet together. It's gross. It's weird. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> all the years I've known you, Zach, I've never, I knew the whole spiders. But I never knew the feet thing, and you're mm. probably you're you're more wigged out about feet than you are spiders. Mm-mm. Forgot about no. your hate spiders. That's not true. There's some big old spiders here. I, I've pulled you I've, I've pulled a splinter out of my wife's foot, but if she if there's a spider on her foot, she's dealing with that alone. That's a battle she's gonna have to fight herself. <laughs> When it comes to spiders, I don't joke around. I was trying to be brave when we moved down here. There's a big old spider on the ceiling. I swung a shoe at it, and it jumped and tried to attack me. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> You're like Costanza in the house fire. Hey, Scott, you know what sounds really good for audio? Getting as far away from your mic as possible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the greatest thing that never happened at preaching school was... Us coming into class one day before Greek, and there was with his socks and shoes up, with his feet up close to (laughs) your sitting area. And those hairy, gnarly, I would guess long toenailed beasts were there. (laughs) Have long toenails, he bit them. Oh. You know what I will remember for the rest of my life? Lifting up your veil, all the while squish, squish, squish in the background. I'd fight a tiger <laughs> to see that. Squish, 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 squish. <laughs> the tiger line was a little weird. That was a little weird, I admit. Now, if that you scene mean you had would gone fight, on you'd for fight. like another 30 seconds or even 10 seconds, I would have been like, okay, it's enough. Because it was borderline enough. 
but it, it was, was not that. It was, your <sighs> your feet problem is a personal issue. Squish, 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 squish. You'd fight tigers for me? Squish, 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 squish. Well, as long as it's not cold out. <laughs> why, why, why is that the contingent on whether or not you're fighting tigers? Is the weather outside? Because Would you jump in front of a morning. bullet? Would you jump in front of a bullet for me? I don't know, honey. What's the weather like? <laughs> you, you it depends. It. You Sixty it. degrees and up, I'm there. I'll jump. But I'm sorry, <laughs> fifty-five's a little too cold for me to be fighting tigers. <laughs> oh man. <clears throat> We're never gonna get through this tonight. <laughs> well, unless it was as cold as our wedding day, right before the sun came up. <laughs> okay. Then we get to meet Thomas, who is for some reason the caterer of the Cana wedding. Don't know where they got that from, but okay, whatever. And uh they're packing everything up and he's worried because they only brought three jugs of wine. Two good jugs and one not so good jug. And he's like, maybe we should bring a fourth jug of wine. Here's the problem I've got here, fellas. Why is Thomas's only character trait the fact that he's neurotic? (laughs) It's got to be because they base it on him wanting the evidence when he sees Jesus at the end of John. He says, show me. Okay. Show me. but, But here's the thing. They gave Matthew Asperger's. Yeah. Okay, they that's a giant liberty they took. I'm just saying Huge. they've they've done so well fleshing out and giving us three-dimensional apostles and then they get to Thomas and he's he's like a uh, he's like one of the seven dwarves. His only character trait is 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 neuroses. I mean, that I, I just don't like it. What do you mean? So you've only so we've only seen him in like basically one scene, right? The wedding. And so his character traits are like Scott was saying, like he he wants to be organized. He wants to know how many people there are. He needs to have everything right, which which makes sense in light of what we know is that he's going to ask for the evidence. But he's like, I, I don't feel like he's one dimensional. I, I, I feel like that's because... a personality that like I could definitely relate to or see in somebody is like that kind of person who when they're doing their job, they're like in focus and they don't want to mess it up. But like you've only seen one scene. So why is it like? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, when we, when we, when we're introduced to Matthew, okay, they didn't just lean in like super heavily that he's just all he's there for is to collect money. He's, you know, he's uh, he's absent from his father's household. He's uh, wanting to get back, but he can't, so he's eating food with dogs. He's doing all these things. Simon, yes, he's he's sitting there trying to swindle people and, and, and fix a fight, and he's in debt and everything, but he's not just this headstrong person. There's little little things that they scatter in to make these characters come to life. Zach, I really feel like you need a hug tonight. <laughs> you say what it's you want. This for like yeah, an but- hour. They're running like four simultaneous scenes, like when Thomas is being introduced, right? They've got the wedding feast, they got John, or, or yeah, John and the Pharisees, or Nicodemus is doing other stuff. So they haven't had nearly as much time to introduce Thomas as they have the other characters. And I'm sure, and, and, and you, there's no way in eight episodes that they're going to be able to build out like every character as much as they have Peter. But I feel like with the time that they had, it was, it was solid. Make a 12 episode season. <laughs> They don't have the money. 
Give they need each, your funding. Oh, they've got the money. I, I guarantee you they got the money. They're getting million, <laughs> two million, three million hits on each one of these videos. They've got YouTube money coming in. They've got people buying things. They've already hit their $10 million goal. That's why they're giving it away for free. Don't think for a second Jenkins doesn't have money clinging around in his pocket. They've got the money. I, I know I know that nobody could see. We all were hearing. We can't see. But when you said, oh, they got the money, that was the biggest skunk eye I've ever seen in my life when you said that. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're going to try to bring out... J Jenkins has gone on record and said, uh, what we were trying to do here is we're really going to flesh out the, the, the characters, all of them. They're going to be really great the entire time, and we're just going to bring life all 12 of these guys. That is a spot-on Dallas Jenkins impersonation. If you haven't watched the episodes yet, go back and watch it, and then listen to my voice again. You're going to be like, oh, did they get Dallas on the show? Nope, it's me. But anyways... <laughs> He makes this claim that he's going to flesh out all the characters, and then he gives us Thomas, and Thomas's one trait, worry, doubt, and skepticism. That was three. But is that your... <laughs> all bold... <laughs> Whatever. Moving on. Fine. I get it. I get it. Everybody thought Thomas was great, except for me. Okay. All right. Moving on. Good night. <laughs> All right, so the next scene, Simon and Andrew. Okay. Um, so then the next scene, Simon and Andrew are carrying their little lunches, which I think is adorable. It's totes adorbs. They both pack their little lunch for their first day out with the Messiah. And they're worried about whether or not they're going to fit in, whether other people pack their lunches and so on and so forth. And uh, they finally meet the other people that are called. And I got to say, this awkward first meeting where... James and John are already there, and uh, Simon and Andrew come up, and there's a few other apostles that are there, and that awkwardness that you see when they first meet, I really like that. Because they're humans, they're people, right? And there would have been that kind of at least awkward, ice-breaking introduction like there always is whenever you're introduced to a new group of people for the first time. And I thought that played out really well. Especially the guy in the tree picking the plums. And then uh, Jesus comes walking in. He's like, hey, I got plums. And Jesus is like, great, now we don't need to stop for lunch. And they both look down at their lunch bags that they brought. That was good. That was really funny. <laughs> yeah, I like that scene. It, it's, uh, and, and how everyone's coming from a different background. So they're all like, you know, none of them necessarily relate. And yet Jesus has called them and they're all following Jesus for a different reason. I really liked like that joke that Jesus made there. Um, how G you know, I always think of Jesus like only saying the words that are in the Gospels, right. walking around like all stoic and stuff like that. And maybe you've talked about this in other episodes, but, um, you, you know, just walking around almost in the stoic, like silent mode until he has something profound to say. And it's like it probably wasn't like halo that. halo behind his head yeah. at all times. <laughs> yeah. So I like no, the way that they portrayed And if you haven't watched the episodes that you weren't on, I'm sh I don't know if you've been keeping up with it and have been caught yeah. up, but uh, the way they portray Jesus all the time is really well. Just He does come across as this good guy, this loving guy. You can see why people were drawn to him, but at the same time, some of his mannerisms and some of the things he says are just, you know, it, it opens your eyes that he was, in fact, we said this before, 100% man and 100% God at the same time. But And you're absolutely right. 
Um, I'm going to ask a question that I've asked 400,000 times in this episode or the series, and I'm going to get the same answer, but I don't really care. And I'm going to ask it because it's our job. Why is Mary Magdalene there? <laughs> Let me give you the best uh, Southern Ohio answer I can. Uh-huh. I'm gonna I'm gonna look up right now on Bible Gateway. I'm just gonna search Mary Magdalene. I just want to settle this for myself once and for all. Yeah, while you're looking at that, I'll say it's interesting that in that scene too, uh, Jesus asked Mary, "Did you ever Did you ever wonder what it would be like to have brothers?" Uh, you know, as they're kind of going back and forth, and we're seeing the human side of all those characters, and uh, but they've definitely showed thus far her traveling with them all places that she's going, and. Also, I just wanted to bring up as well that Peter said something that I absolutely love in this scene because he looked at Andrew and he said, I don't want to disappoint him. And I think that's a great trait, a character trait that they're building on with Peter uh, because he's going to disappoint greatly. We'll find as we as his character grows. But I really feel that's the mindset of Peter as he is uh, uh, there working with Christ and traveling with him. I don't want to disappoint him. Yeah, and uh, like I said, that comes across. But they're they're making Mary the thirteenth uh, apostle. Yeah, and and no, I looked it up. There's I, I just typed in Mary Magdalene, and they included the parts of the Bible where she's just called Mary. But through context of the other few Gospels, you can tell that they're talking about Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned a grand total of thirteen times. There's thirteen verses that have Mary Magdalene in them. Every single one of them has to do with the resurrection. Every single one. She is not mentioned before Jesus died. Why? Why in the world are they giving Mary this much attention? I would be more accepting if they used Lazarus's sisters as the 13th female apostle. At least we know that Jesus was with them before he died. But what's the point? I, I I don't get it. I don't get it. As a tie-in, I mean, with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus's curiosity is like sparked because of his history with Mary. So I get, I, you know, I kind of see what they might be doing there. Like he follows Jesus around, or he follows Mary around because he wants to know what happened to her, which obviously isn't biblical. But I understand why they might make that tie-in. But there's also just like I think we talked about this in the last episode I was on, just like this kind of like fascination with religious people, especially people who don't maybe don't know the Bible very well, of like Mary Magdalene and all that's been stirred up by things like, you know, all these books that have been written about Mary's secret relationship. And so there's they're they're not supporting that, but at the same time, I'm not so sure that they're not playing off of it to kind of like have that allure to that character. Well, I'm just, all I'm saying is there's not a ton of female characters in the New Testament. I get that. There's not a lot to choose from if you want to have this female point of view, which they're trying to do. I get what they're doing. Especially in the 21st century, you need that, or else you're going to get called out for being a sexist. Well, you do. I mean, I'm not even making a joke. That's just the truth. But there's the woman at the well. Why couldn't he be, or she be, uh, uh, Jesus's female follower. Uh, the woman that came up and, and asked Jesus for crumbs, and Jesus says, why do, do I throw my crumbs before dogs? There's somebody that could have been his follower. There's all these females in the Bible that have pretty much just the same amount of, of, of mentions in the Bible that they could have used, but instead, because Mary Magdalene has been made into this uh, uh, 
biblical leading lady, a romantic interest, and that's what Mary has become. What? You know, like Mary's like the pinup girl of the New Testament. I need a better analogy than that. Yep, you do. <laughs> but I, I do, I do feel like like that is the way that they're using her. Like there is like almost this very uh, set because she's a prostitute, right? There's like the sexualized yeah. allure that they're playing off of. They're not going to say it. They're never going to like build, you know, deeper than they ought to. But they're I, like I, they're using that as like a, an attraction in the background almost. You see, I don't know if they're not going to use that a little further as a scene that we're going to talk to comes up that also made me a little bit uncomfortable and ask, why is Mary there? But anyways, whatever. Mary's one of the guys. So Mary, the apostle. I'm sorry. I just want to say, too, I think all of us, because we know what people have tried to do with Mary Magdalene through other shows, through other books, through other types of purposes or, or statements that they've made that simply aren't true according to the New Testament, we're unbelievably sensitive to it right off the bat because of what others have attempted before that we're immediately going to be on the lookout to say, are they going to get this right? Or are they going to go down that same road? I, I'd, hmm. We're triggered. In the next scene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is... Uh... They're looking up at the, 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 the arbor or the whatever. What's that thing called that you stand under at a wedding? I don't know. It's an arbor. I, I was right the first time. I don't know why I second-guessed myself. They're standing underneath the arbor where the, the bride and groom are going to get married, and the wife or the mother of the, the groom is like, eh, I don't really like it, but it's all we could afford, so it's pretty good. And then Mary goes, I'm going to talk to the guy. And then she's like, no, no, Mary, don't worry about it. And she's like, I'm going to talk. Why are they portraying Mary as a nag? She comes across as like this, like this naggy person that that she doesn't come across very well. I think it might be a little creamier on this perfect. side. Perfect. No. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it's perfect. And sturdy. Let me speak with the carpenter. I know their language. It will be okay. Will you help me decorate it? Dinah, please. Let me do this for you. Mary, I love you, but Rafi and I got what we paid for. I'm embarrassed how few timbers we could offer. There's no reason to settle. Who's settling? It'll be perfect. There are many other things to do today, Mary. You said so yourself. Always the bright side. Someone has to be. (laughs) (laughs) Only to you. Seriously, I'm the only one that noticed that as well. I well, no, I mean, I I saw it and I did. I guess I didn't. I didn't put that much into it when when she said that. Uh, I I you know it, it shook a little. It uh, I you know I'm not a wedding expert. I, I don't know, but I'm like yeah, you know whatever. Uh, but <laughs> you need a hug. I. No, I thought it was it was like part of it. It was part of her character because she's a carpenter's husband. And so she cares about she's seen things like that. She's seen how they should be built. And then she's critical of what the carpenter has done. And she's going to go talk to him and get him to fix it because she knows he could, he should do better. I hate it. So, when you're and right, she, Luke. she wants her friend's wedding to be or her friend's son's wedding to be good. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. You're right. I hate I hate you. But yeah. <laughs> No, you're right, and I don't know why. Like, I hate everyone in this show. 
No, I don't hate everyone. She just reminded me of, like, the woman that's up at the counter at Walmart wanting her money back without returning the item. Like, that's the way it came across in my mind. <laughs> She's like, I want my money back for this spiral ham we all ate yesterday. Do you have the ham yet? No, we ate it. want my money back. After the feet scene, it just ruined you. <sighs> Let's skip forward to um, Simon arrives at the wedding. He's got the wine. The The guy that's in charge of handing out the beverages at the place tastes it. He's like, mm, that's some tasty wine right there. And it's all good. Uh, and uh, they explain that he has two good wines and one lesser. That's the that's the tradition. And do you know why that's the tradition? Well, as the uh, uh, master of catering or whatever his name was says, well, that's pretty much how it's done. When everybody gets good and toasted, then we can bring out the, the swill and no one will care. <laughs> What's your problem with that? <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. I, I have a problem with that. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not saying that the wine that they served at the wedding in Cana was not alcoholic. We can't say that. But we do know that drunkenness is a sin. And so Jesus producing more wine than they need in order for them to keep drinking, I would stand by the argument that that is promoting drunkenness. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus, if he was creating alcoholic wine was a sin. That would be a sin. But from what I understand historically, the the wine was considered better when it was sweeter, meaning it was not as old and fermented and bitter tasting as it would have gotten the longer that wine sat. So the sweeter wine would be the wine with less alcoholic content in it, and the older wine would be the ones that had time to kind of grow a little... A little yeasty. Uh, I don't, it's hard. It's hard to make the case for the, at least in my mind, it's hard to make the case for the alcoholic wine. And what you said, Zach, I think it's true that you look at what happened within this, which ends up being the first miracle that that Christ would have made a, a an alcoholic wine far superior to what was served first. So then, does that put Christ in? Uh, sin for doing that if it was the alcohol it would. Uh, or the better the better alcoholic wine yeah sure it would have and you know drunkenness is a sin and you find that uh the party's going to keep on going so but they really portrayed it in the beginning with as you refer to it i think swill uh, uh there ain't you know, no the, party I, like a jesus wine party because the jesus wine party don't stop sorry you said party <laughs> kept going and then that popped into my head and i had to say it <laughs> <laughs> I just lost all train of thought. <laughs> um, they're they're definitely portraying this as alcoholic wine, which is oh like, yeah, they are. is against against the principles that we find in the New Testament. Yeah, whole Abner's yeah, getting it, to Abner's Abner getting toasty. <laughs> He's turning into a slopopotamus. I mean. <laughs> But anyway, we'll get to Abner in just a moment. So, Jesus comes. There's a scene where the mother of the bride goes up and greets him. Again, we're reminded that Jesus had a life, that he had people 
uh, that he wasn't just what we're told in the, the Gospels, that he had, you know, 30 years of life before he started his ministry. And I really liked him, him running up, giving her a big hug, and, and giving him a big hug, rather. It was just a sweet little scene when Jesus arrived at the wedding. So then we are back with uh, Nicodemus and John. And Nicodemus tells John about Mary's demon, and John gets all excited because if Jesus is doing private miracles, then public miracles are going to start, and public miracles start, then boom, we're, we're, on the, we're on the doorsteps of the Messiah. Hi there, it's me, Zach, again in the editing bay. As I was going through this, I realized that we failed to introduce who Abner was. Well, at the wedding that they are attending in Cana here, Abner was actually the father of the bride. And the father and mother of the bride really didn't like Mary's friend, who was the mother of the groom. So, that's who Abner was. It's kind of important going forward. Back at the wedding, guys, you're never going to believe this. There's not enough wine. Who would have saw uh. this coming? Um, they Thomas. start a, they start a, a wonderful drinking montage where everybody's just tossing back little clay pots like they're at the pottery barn. And uh, they're just having a great time. Um, man, this wine is magical wine, I've got to say. Because it's mending bridges, this wine. I've heard of alcohol burning bridges, but not this wine. This wine's Minden Bridges. Abner's coming up saying that that is the most level arbor he's ever seen, even though it was a little bit crooked just a couple of scenes before. But Abner's seeing two arbors. He's not He's not paying attention to whether or not the arbor's level or not. Everybody is just feeling warm and toasty right now. I mean, they're getting drunk, like drunk drunk. And it's, uh, it, <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this at all. And out of everybody that was in the scenes at the party, I think, to me, anyway, Abner's the most evident of the ones that are drunk. I mean, he well, just Of seems... course he is. He's sitting there drinking his cup, and he's like, hey, I used to think you guys were all a big bunch of poo, but, glug, 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 <laughs> not anymore. You guys are now my favorite people in the whole world. What was I saying? I, yeah, it was it was bad. I, I don't like this interpretation at all. I, I don't either. I no, don't I agree. Either. And it's just it's not it it just goes away from the biblical principle. I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, listen. Let's 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 lay this out on the line. All right. I don't think it's a sin. To drink a glass of wine. I don't. I don't drink at all, but that's for personal reasons. But I do not think it's a sin to have a glass of wine. That's not getting drunk. I don't think you should tempt yourself. It's better to, to stay away from it all. But it's not sinful. As long as you're not getting drunk. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about by Jesus providing them more alcoholic wine... He is enabling these people to sin. Enabling the drunkenness. That's my problem right here. The fact that they are yeah. showing people drunk is wrong. It's messed up. And you got people out there watching this, and they've got so much good information leading up to this episode. And now they're getting here going, Hey, guess what, Becky? We're watching that Jesus show. We're going to still be drinking our PBR. Woohoo! And it's just... How's Kentucky, Zach? 
<laughs> no, that was not Kentucky. That was Alabama. Um, <laughs> but it, it's just wrong. Yeah, I, I agree. Totally, totally wrong. Totally wrong. One thing I will notice, though, is that in every scene, except for one, Jesus is not holding a wine glass. I did notice that. Because I asked, Megan and I were watching that, and, and I asked, did was Jesus drinking anything? And I don't think they ever showed him drinking anything. Even at the toast, that was the only time he was holding a wine glass, but I was watching him. At the toast, at the end that we'll get to, everybody held up their glasses to toast to the bride and groom, and you could see Jesus on the screen. Everybody drank, but he did not. It didn't touch his lips. But here's the thing. Enabling someone to sin, just because you're not partaking in the sin... You're still sick. If I turn into a meth cook and I'm selling meth to people and people are dying from overdoses, I'm still sinning by allowing people to sin. Yep. You can't justify this scene at all. It's interesting that they fear. Seems like they know that. Like they don't have Jesus drinking, which I can only imagine is intentional, right? Yep. Like they did that and they knew they were doing that because they knew if they had him drinking, it would probably cause some issues. Um, so there's like there's like Jesus who's adverse to drinking, but then they're supporting this idea that Jesus is like giving all of these people enough wine to get drunk on. Like there's kind of a like a paradox there, or, you mm-hmm. know. Can't yeah. really. It's like they know it's wrong, but they still like create the scene around it. Yeah, if they if they don't have a problem with it or they understand, uh, you know, the accuracy of what the wine was. Uh, why wouldn't they just let Jesus drink? Or if they think it's wrong, or if they think it's okay for everybody else, why not just have Jesus tip his mug back? I mean, that's the whole point of the show. Old Jenkins says it over almost every time, if you watch five minutes after the episode, is unlike every other Jesus show out there, here's what we're trying to do. We're going to make Jesus seem like a normal person, and it's going to be awesome. And he says that all the time. Except in this scene, we're going to make Jesus stand out. Because he's not drinking. But anyways, we were almost we almost glossed over the biggest moment of the show. Um, and that is Jesus sitting at a table with kids teaching them the shell game. <laughs> what? You didn't notice that there's a scene where Jesus is sitting at a table surrounded by kids. And he has three shells in front of him, and he's sliding them around like, find the pretty lady. Pretty lady wins a prize. Just go ahead and find it. So not only is Jesus advocating drink- drunkenness in this episode, but he's also a busker. <laughs> what is a busker? A busker is a hobo that sits in the subway and challenges people to games of chance. That was mostly a joke. I thought that was kind of cute, him playing games with the kids that he'd be able to play. I'm not being serious. But after people get drunk, there's a big old problem. And that's the wine's gone. All the wine's gone. Oh no, what are we going to do? We need to go on a B-double-E-double-R-U-N. Okay, real quick before we get to the the wine, where the, yeah, the, mm-hmm. real quick before we get to that. <laughs> We have this we have this scene before we move on to the the biggest moment of the show. All the the future apostles, all the chosen are sitting there at a table and uh they're watching Jesus play with these kids. 
Andrew was showing that he has some doubts. Simon is trying to reassure him. Um, and again, I wrote in my notes and underlined it, and I wrote it in red. Why is Mary there? <laughs> yeah. She's sitting at the table, just just you know, tossing out her antidotes with the with the big boys sitting there. And and worse than that, worse than that, Mary. I rewatched the scene. Mary knows more about Jesus than any of the other apostles. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, true. she knows Jesus's eating schedule and whether or not he flosses every day. She knows everything. And why? Why is she being given such a big part? And then why is that one apostle also ashamed to say that he built a toilet? I found that very <laughs> funny. I found that so funny. And then Mary says this line that made me physically uncomfortable where he's like, I don't know if I should talk about the toilets in front of a lady because ladies don't go number one or number two. And then she turns around to him and goes, I have seen and heard things that would turn your blood to ice. Well, calm down there, Hydra. Jeez. Good night. (laughs) You don't understand. I'm from the street. Like, pump the brakes, Mary. Good golly. She pulls out a switchblade and plays with it in front of him. <laughs> uh, I've been. Any thoughts on that scene? <laughs> I didn't have nearly as many as you had. <laughs> uh, there does seem to be like the feminist element that uh, that's happened several times where she is like more in tune with Jesus than any of them are, which is <clears throat> probably socially motivated but yes i agree i will turn your blood into ice (laughs) you don't understand where i came from we had to murder the rats and drink the blood for our supper i've killed men before and maimed children they call me bloody mary magdalene i mean it's just too much and so, Jesus, I like this next scene that comes up after that terrifying uh, uh, whatever nonsense. They're walking down the, the, the back hallway with Jesus, Simon and Andrew are, and, and the, the dance of, of oh, what was it? The dance of um, Miriam. Miriam. Dance of Miriam starts, and they're like, hey, Jesus, dance of Miriam started. Like, it's like first century version of the YMCA. Like, hey, you want to come dance this dance of Miriam? It's going to be fun. <laughs> And then uh, Jesus is like, yeah, I do. That's why I'm here. Dance of Miriam is my jam. And then Andrew's like, well, hold on. I don't think I can do it. And then Simon goes, yeah, he's got four left feet. And then Jesus is like, four left feet? What are you talking about, Holmes? And he's like, have you ever seen a donkey dancing on hot coals? It was stupid, but funny. It was very stupid, but I laughed. I laughed. And then Andrew goes, I don't think I've ever seen a donkey dance on hot coals. And then Mary Magdalene popped up in the back. She's smoking a cigarette going, and pray you never have to. (laughs) You need a day off, Zach. (laughs) When was the last time you took a day off? Oh, what year is it? (laughs) Some wine would probably do you good. A day off. No, I took a day off on Monday. That's why I've got all this energy. Um... And then we have, there's this big scene where Mary comes up to Jesus, and he, she's like, Jesus, there's no wine. 
And Jesus is like, okay. She goes, you got to do something. He goes, what am I going to do? It's like, miracles. And Jesus, <laughs> and then Jesus goes, it's not my time yet. Then his mom goes, then you better make it your time. That's not what she says. <laughs> she says something like, <laughs> she says something like, Mother, my time has not yet come. If not now, when? And I wrote in big letters, capital letter, what is happening here? Where did this show go so off the rails just in this one episode? Are you telling me that Jesus' public ministry was sparked by his mother saying, hey, it's time to turn water into wine? That's what the show's saying. That phrase was used somewhere else in the episode, but I can't remember where. That if not now, then when? Who else? It's at, used it's that at the beginning. It's at the beginning. Yeah. Jesus says that to her because she's like, "What are you doing at the temple?" He's like, "About my father's business." And she's like, "You're supposed to be with your earthly father, your Abba. I'm your Ema. That's your Abba. Get away from that, abracadabra." And then Jesus goes, "I must be about my father's business." She goes, "Now's not the time." And Jesus goes, "If not now, then when?" And then, flash forward 30 years, Jesus is like, now's not the time, but this time it's mama going, if not now, then when? And she's like, so she's of course, now it's time. And for the listeners that didn't know, because this is an audio podcast, I smacked myself in the forehead real hard right there. Like, it hurts. No, I don't think you did. I mean, it, I think you could have smacked yourself way harder. Oh, I could have. Take two. <laughs> what in the world is happening here? I, How so do you... I, how do you get that scene out of John 3, 3, and 5? Listen to this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. How do you take that and turn that into Mary telling Jesus, come on, man, it's time to public ministry up. Let's go. How yeah, would you interpret why Jesus? So I felt kind of pity on the director here because it's a tough, in my opinion, it's a tough verse because there Mary says, or Jesus is like, it's not my time, right? My hour is not yet come. And then his mother just turns around and says, do whatever he tells you. It's like, there must've been something like she, she, she basically confirms that he's going to do it. Right. Even though he just told her that it wasn't his hour. Like you know, you have to, they can, I they agree. Can... It's weird that Mary is like convincing him to do it. It's like, he doesn't know it, but at the same time, it's like, how do you interpret that? They could have fixed it by just removing that stupid line where she says, if not now, when you take that away, I'm fine with it. Because in my mind, the way I've always read this is that Jesus is saying, it's not the time yet. And Mary's like, I'm your mom. You're going to listen to me. Do whatever he says. That's the way I take it. That's not Mary forcing Jesus or convincing him to start his ministry. It's Mary saying, look, I'm your mom. I need your help. Do it. But it is yeah. the start of ministry, right? I mean, in, well, that's she, the first public she, miracle. But, but does Mary know right then and there that he's going to do a miracle? How does she know that, that he doesn't know somebody in Cana that owns a vineyard that he's going to go and get some jugs of wine from or, or something like that? We have a woman whose husband is presumably dead. 
Joseph is gone, which means Jesus is the oldest, which means he's head of the house. She's been relying on Jesus for who knows how many years to solve her problems, because that's the way it worked in the first century. She doesn't know what to do when Jesus is gone. And so when Jesus first goes, woman, my hour has not yet come, he's reminding his mom that, you know what, I was with you for 30 years. For 30 years, but now it's my time to go do my father's work. I'm going to have to go do what I've been sent here to do. But Mary doesn't want to hear that yet. Mary's like, okay, that's fine, but I still need your help here at this wedding right here, right now. She doesn't know what he's going to do. I guess I never read it that way. Because, I mean, why didn't she just tell the servants then that they should just go out and, and get wine if, if, you know, if they know where to get it or if it's available anywhere around there? So, um, and, and then she tells the servants, do whatever my son tells you to do. I, I mean, I suppose you could read it that way. I've never read it that way. I've, I've always assumed that she came to Jesus because he was the only one who could do anything about it. Um, and to so. me, what's tough is from, from John 2, 4 to John 2, 5, we don't have information there. In John 4, as you said, my woman, uh, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay. And then we see Mary just say to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. What happens in between that? Yeah. You know, and that's where the, that's where the director's taking a lot of liberty to go, and I don't like it either. I don't like it. I don't like it either, uh, because to me that wasn't true to the Bible or what happened. And that pleading part there, you know, it was kind of like the puppy dog eyes. I, I don't know. I I was uncomfortable with it. I thought there could have been a better way to have done that. I don't know what it would have been, but I didn't like the way it was done. Yeah, it's weird to see Jesus being convinced by his mother that his ministries, it's time yeah. to start his ministry. But I guess, I mean, God could providentially use that event as the beginning of his ministry. But still, it's weird to see his mom being the one who has to tell him that. I, I don't know. I just I just don't feel, it doesn't sit comfortable. I think that's taking too much liberty to say, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that God didn't use this as the providential catalyst that started Jesus' ministry. That's very well, well that's exactly what happened. But I'm not comfortable saying that Mary was the one that was like, hey, Jesus, it's time to take the training wheels off, pull up your big boy britches, and let's get this public ministry started. Yeah, it is it, weird. It, yeah, and it's tough to think about, uh, you know, because to me, when Jesus says, my hour's not yet come, don't bother with me with this. It's nothing to me. And in the very next verse, John chapter 2, verse 5, <laughs> mom just says, you listen to him. You, you do what he says. Well, again what happened why you know jesus is saying to me it's not yet it's not time yet but we know he does it absolutely (laughs) all right so jesus is like okay it's time to go let's do this um and uh he goes and talks to thomas and he's like hey thomas you see these jars of water let's fill them up Thomas goes, why? Fair question. (laughs) And then, uh, because Thomas, he's no logical solution to this problem. Now, this is where me and Thomas kind of are simpatico, because I am a man of logic, believe it or not. But he's like, I don't, don't, oh, trust me. The reason why I see all this stuff is because I'm looking at it through a stupidly logical lens. That's the only explanation is highly analytical and logical, almost to the point. It not not almost to a fault. It is a fault. My whole brain's just a fault. And <laughs> but anyways, Thomas is like, okay. 
And so they fill up the water. And I really like this scene, this back and forth between him and Thomas, because Thomas is like, I don't see any logical reason why we're doing this. And Jesus goes, it's going to be like that sometimes. I... Hit the nail on the head right there. That's, that's really good. And then he also says something that I think is important. Of all the, the, the garbage in this episode and the things that we don't like or the things we disagree with, the fact that Jesus turns to Thomas who's sitting there asking why, why are we doing this, and says that it's good to ask questions to seek understanding. I love that scene. I love that line because how many religious movements out there say, don't ask questions. You're supposed to take it on faith. You're supposed to just close your eyes and take a blind leap in the dark, and that is not what Christianity is about. It is all about finding reason and proof and evidence to build your faith. And so again, they got that right. They hit that right on the head in that scene. Well, eh, Jesus turns water to wine. Okay, why did Jesus ask for privacy when he did the miracle? That's not what the Bible says he did. I don't like that. Yeah, that that confused me. I did not understand why everybody left and he asked Thomas to leave after he talked to him. And every time I pictured, and this is in my mind, Jesus turning the water into wine, it wasn't in a room by himself. Now, could it have been? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, we're really not told, but I'd never thought of it that way uh, when when that happened. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Because the servants were astounded, the apostles were astounded. Matter of fact, that was what solidified their belief in, in God, was seeing mm-hmm. him turn this water into wine, or the disciples were astounded. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, too, What the, it contradicts really what John had said in that scene with Nicodemus prior when John said, talking about the public ministry or the public signs that are about to start. Uh, and then we come to this, it's not... It's going to be known, but it's not public at all. It's very private. Well, by and shutting himself out, about it. by shutting himself out, he essentially turned turning water into wine into a David Copperfield trick. You know, where he where he pulls the curtain around the airplane, and you don't see what's going on behind the curtain, but he drops the curtain, and the plane's gone. You know, I mean, you know, he did something, but what makes Jesus's miracles powerful in my mind is not the fact that he walked into a room by himself with a man with a wizard hand and the man came out and the hand was healed. It's the fact that he told him to outstretch his hand in front of God and everybody and the hand was immediately brought back to normal. Yeah, and it was seen. Luke, what's your thoughts on this scene? I didn't have a problem with this scene, actually. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, yeah, it was a little weird that he sent everybody out. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say one way or another. It, now, I I guess from reading that in John, uh, is that John 2, Scott? It is John, John? 2. Um, I wasn't implying that, but uh, John 2, verse 8, he said to them, now draw some, oh, well, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So there seems to just be like a continued scene there so mm-hmm. probably i guess in the bible he did not send them out of the out of the room but uh so you're right you're right yeah i mean it's, it's just it, i i've just never pictured that and i think part of that's the reading that we have in the scripture where you as you said there it's a continuous scene he told his told the servants to do this and he draws the wine out and it goes so um yeah 
Absolutely. I mean, but where do we ever have a miracle in the entire Bible? There's been miracles where Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Mm-hmm. There's been miracles where he wasn't present in order to heal them. But there's not another example of a miracle in the entire Bible where Jesus is like, everybody out! Yeah. I've got to do some miracle done in, done in here. in secret. And this was weird. All right, yeah. so everybody's bummed out at the party because they don't got no wine. And then somebody runs in and they go, hey, guys, wine's back. Everybody breaks out into cheering. Woo, wine. And then the guy that's in charge of drinking or in charge of serving the wine takes a sip. And guys, this is the best wine that has ever been wined in the history of wine. I mean, this is grade A platinum. One of a kind, five star, the best vintage wine ever. And he likes it so much that this servant stands up and stops the feast of his masters and says, Hey, y'all, I know I'm a servant here and I'm the master of catering and everything, but if y'all could just shut up for a minute so I can tell you how great this wine is, that'd be great. This wine, this wine's the best. A plus, grade A. Y'all shut up. This is the best wine. Everybody drink some. That was a little over the top for him. Not for me, for him. Are, are, are you making a point with that or no i just i'm just over uh, selling it because it was humorous to me the fact that he stood up and brought everything to a screeching halt just to tell everybody that the wine's back it just that, that didn't make a lot of sense to me like at my wedding what? we just served like pop but my family's big pepsi drinkers but can you imagine the pepsi runs out this would be the equivalent to my wedding we run out of pepsi Everybody's bummed out because now we have to drink nasty Coke. And then somebody comes in with a 24-pack of that blue wonderfulness in their arms going, Hey, everybody, Pepsi's back. Yeah! Woo! Pepsi! You know, it just just doesn't make sense to me that they're stopping everything in order to tell everyone just how great this wine is. Don't get me wrong. I think it it probably was the greatest wine that's ever been made. And it probably was. And, and what? And according to the scripture in verse 9 of John 3, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So according to the biblical account, it sounds to me like the interruption that took place now in, in the scene. Go ahead. Now I'm picturing in my mind they're having their first dance. They're dancing cheek to cheek. Everybody's all quiet and loving. And then all of a sudden the master of the... Of the, of the what is it called? Master of the... Uh, whatever comes busting in and going hey hey i know you're dancing with your wife real quick you gotta try this wine man it's awesome (laughs) i gotta tell you (laughs) tossing the bouquet everybody stop (laughs) you hold on to that bouquet (laughs) (laughs) in the story that they're building like through the the um like the narrative like i think you know, obviously it's not like super biblical that they stopped the wedding, but for the, for the narrative that they've created, like it's important because they're, they're like redeeming the fam or uh, Dinah and her husband. I can't remember her husband's name, uh, like the poorer family of the groom, because mm-hmm. there like, there's this tension, which I like because it's, you know, it's true to life with a lot of weddings. There's this tension that they don't have as much money as the other family and the other families, you know, superior to them. And they're all worried about this. And so, in in 
that guy stopping the feast and announcing to everyone that, oh, they had actually done a great honor, you know, and they had kind of stepped it up. And then, you know, Abner and his wife are impressed. So then, you know, it's like Jesus is redeeming those people who were like on the poor end of things. And it's like because of his kindness. But at that point in the wedding, I get what you're saying, Luke. But at that point in the wedding, you could have given Abner a glass of great value grape juice and he would have been happy. He'd been like, he clearly, he'd be he like, guys, has. this, this right here. <laughs> is this Welch's? All oh, his good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, man. Oh, so hmm. uh, Abner's loving himself. Everybody's happy. <laughs> Thomas is staring at the wine. Um, and then and you uh, heard what Abner said, right? You, you heard you heard what Abner said in that one last scene. He looked at his wife and he goes, "I was wrong." Yeah, he looked yeah. at his wife and goes, "I was wrong." I'm, he goes, "I'm too drive to drunk." <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Thomas stares at the wine for a little bit. And then Simon, I do like this scene because this is biblical. Simon comes up to Jesus and all doubts that Simon and Andrew may have been having are gone because he's like, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And then it comes one of my favorite scenes of the whole episode because Jesus turns around. Simon's like, let's do this. I'm pumped. Let's go get our miracle on. Ah. And then Jesus turns around all serious and he goes, yes, but we have to talk about something first. Your brother's feet. I heard he has four (laughs) of them. And then... And then, <laughs> then Simon goes Andrew's feet, like flavor, flavor, something. <laughs> I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. I hope so, Simon. But I seem to remember there was a problem. Something about Andrew's feet. Andrew's feet. Uh, and then I do like that line where they're dancing and Simon asks Jesus if he can help Andrew. Andrew's dancing. And Jesus goes, uh, there's some things even I cannot do. That was good. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Again, one of those touches of humor. There was actually, I was listening to somebody and they, they didn't have any problem with like any other scene in the movie, but they had a problem with that scene because it like was a, was a shot at like God's, power but i thought it was i i mean i thought that was a little ridiculous yeah it was it was funny because the point is jesus can do everything right right it's like that that question or can god make something so heavy that even he can't lift well no because that doesn't make any sense logically that's saying that andrew's dancing is so bad that even god can't fix it that's saying yeah, he's, that's he's the worst dancer was... in the world it was hilarious i loved it i saw nothing wrong with that and God and that's, can make that's surprising because I saw something wrong with everything. So that's true. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, Simon is told to go. Simon decides to follow Jesus. The end. Credits roll. We're done. Hallelujah. Cool. Anything else you want to add? Nope. Now that we are done going through the show, thankfully and finally, before we get to our rating, we have to do a little something special. It's time for a game <laughs> that I like to call. What you talking about, Pure Flicks? It's where we make a timely reference of uh, All in the Family. And then, here's how this game goes. I'm going to give you the title of a Pure Flicks movie straight off of their website. 
And your job is, both Scott and Luke, because we're done pranking Scott and his knowledge, the, the, the premise of this game is simple. I'm going to give you a title, then you both have to give me a one-sentence synopsis, like you see on Netflix or something, like, this is what the movie's about, and whoever's the closest gets the point. You understand? Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Our first title is Finding Normal. Luke, <laughs> what do you think Finding Normal is about? Finding Normal is about some poor divorcee woman who has been abused and mistreated by men in general. Uh, and she has to discover what true love is and being normal. You know, that normal life that she's been deprived of all these years. Okay. That's what that's. Scott, what's Finding Normal about? Finding Normal, um, it's actually a really good movie. It's about a family <laughs> that were shut in during a pandemic and not allowed to leave their house for six months. And it is the family shown during this pandemic in the house trying to get along and then trying to be able to go back to school and also uh, with the mother going back to her job. Actually, Finding Normal is an animated comedy about a young fish named Normal who gets taken away by a dentist to Australia and his dad, Merlin, has to go and save him. <laughs> close. No, Luke, Luke gets the point. He was closest. While serving her sentence of community service, Lisa's world turns upside down after meeting the man of her dreams. So, uh, so Luke Good gets job, the Luke. closest. Now, if one of you guys get close to this next one, I will be just impressed. The next title was called Brothers of the Wind. Scott, Brothers what's, the, what's Brothers of the Wind about? Go ahead and make your fart joke, but then give me the serious one. My fart joke is the serious one. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> It's a movie about three brothers, age 16, 14, and 12, <laughs> throughout their life. I just and it's the, it's the immaturity antics of them in high school, then college, then young adulthood. All three brothers get married, and, and they're always just immature until they're all in their 50s and still laughing at poop jokes. <laughs> the reason why I laugh so hard is... You were very specific about telling us the ages of these brothers in your mind. Oh, that was, it's, that it's was a fantastic. Good, it's a good show. I'll have to check it out. All right, Luke. Brothers of the Wind. Brothers of the Wind is about uh, two brothers who grew up in Chicago, the Windy City. Uh, they got involved in some gang life, and they started selling um, the good good on the streets of... Chicago, and uh, they had to be had to be reformed. <laughs> had to <laughs> had to go to rehab for a little while, uh, but then uh, uh, there was a Bible that blew a page of the Bible that blew on the wind and landed near them when they were selling the drugs. And oh, so they, the good good is drugs, right? 
The good good is drugs. It's yeah, that, oh, that, yeah. That, that wacky tobacco, the devil's lettuce. Yeah. And then the Bible, though, is the next thing to blow in on the wind, and then they're they're reformed. I'm going to both or give you both a point for being absolutely so wrong. You guys were so wrong that <laughs> I can't award a point to either one of you. So what I'm going to do is give you both a point because I'm nice like that. Brothers Thank of you. the Wind, the synopsis for this movie is called in a world it takes courage to fly, a young boy and an eagle bond through an incredible adventure together. Well, at least Luke was close. <laughs> yeah, because what they were doing was selling that good good. Mm. good okay. <clears throat> pure flicks that I want to know. What you talk about, Pure Flicks? Is I Am Gabriel... I Am Gabriel is about an old man who is supposed to deliver the news that his granddaughter is uh, pregnant. Why he knows that before she does, I don't know. <laughs> but um, there's a magical... Oh. This is turning from pure flicks to lifetime real quick. <laughs> 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 Am I allowed to say I don't even want a point? This is great. Let Luke have it. I don't know why his grandfather did that first. According, according to Luke, I am Gabriel is about a grandpa who knows his granddaughter's pregnant before she does. Okay, Scott. I got nothing. I, mean... I am Gabriel. What's it about? Uh, all right. It's actually about a young boy who was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And between his time of diagnosis and his death, he spent a lot of time in the hospital because he was a uh, his his family were Christians. His dad was a minister. Uh, he spent time in a hospital touching and making a difference in lives of others that were terminally ill as well. But no one was pregnant. <laughs> Tonight on Lifetime, I am Gabriel. <laughs> Vanessa is pregnant, and the only person that knows is Gabriel. The problem is, Gabriel's her grandfather. Find out how this worked out tonight. <laughs> oh, my word. That was fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Um, <clears throat> Scott, I'm going to have to give you the points. Now you're tied 2-2. I am Gabriel... Oh my goodness, that was funny. <laughs> I'm crying over here. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> his daughter, his, his granddaughter took a pregnancy test that takes 10 minutes to show up, and she thought it only took five. Well, the grandpa came, took the trash out, saw the pregnancy test, and said, Oh no! <laughs> 
I am Gabriel coming to Lifetime in 2021. <laughs> Though I am uh. Gabriel is about promise, Texas is no place to raise a family. Just when things are at their darkest, a mysterious boy wanders out of the wilderness. It was John the Baptist. That was it. That was the entire <laughs> synopsis. It's about some strange boy, boy popping out of the woods. Okay. Oh, interesting. I don't want to watch any of these movies, but as time goes on, if this is successful, we're probably going to have to, and I'm not looking forward to it. But I am looking forward to this one. Scott, give me the synopsis of the movie Apple Mortgage Cake. What Apple. is it? Apple Mortgage Cake. Cake. <laughs> well, this is actually a movie that they've tried to reset back in the 1700s by a young boy from Johnny Appleseed, by the name of Johnny Appleseed. And he uh, was having arrows shot off his head to make money to purchase a home and when they finally were able to get the loan to come through his grandmother gabby uh baked him a cake it was apple cake <laughs> okay okay so stupid so stupid Luke, what is Apple Mortgage Cake about? Um, this is about Steve Jobs. It's a documentary. And uh <laughs> the pure blank flick Steve Jobs documentary. <laughs> <laughs> and um so Steve Jobs originally didn't start Apple, he started Cake, which was the original name of the company. Mm. Uh, but he got sued because, um, there was a cake shop that was down the road that was called, uh, cake as well. And, um, so he, in order to pay off the lawsuit, he had to sell his house and refinance his, um, his house. And, uh, so then he started Apple and that's how it came to be. Wonderful. Well, um... Again, we're going to have to go with you both get a point for just being so wrong. Apple Mortgage Cake is actually about a granddaughter who becomes pregnant. And the only person that knows is her grandfather. synopsis apple mortgage cake with the basement flooded the roof collapsing a mountain of debt and 10 days to pay her mortgage and taxes angela logan a single mother with three boys risk everything and decides to bake her way out of foreclosure i feel like we were both pretty close to that yeah you guys were right on the money and finally <clears throat> this is uh the name of a television series luke tell me what Sons of Thunder is about. Sons of Thunder. It's about Thor. 
what war? Thor. Thor. Oh, <laughs> Thor. 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 Sons of Thor. It's about it's about Thor. Um, Thor had uh, two sons, and they were called the the Sons of Thunder, and their names were James and John. Hmm. And then they met up with. Uh, let's see. Let me revert the story so I don't blaspheme. Um, yeah, I, I, they met up with uh, Shrek, and uh, they became his disciple. And uh, they rode the donkey into the uh, the city there in Shrek, and uh, saved the people from from cake. <laughs> and the B story is there's a grandpa who's the only person. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta Scott. be honest with you. I would love to see these movies. We been talking about not the ones you've been talking about zach but the ones that luke and i've been talking about. i would not want to see luke's weird fantasy grandpa mm. <laughs> okay scott uh, uh what's sons of thunder about sons of thunder uh a religious biker gang going about the country to spread the gospel I feel like that might be that's a solid guess. Combat vet Simon motorcycles around the country working odd jobs helping those God puts in his path and trying to atone for past sins in a biker club. Well, Scott, for the second week in a row, you have won. What'd you talk about, Pure Flicks? Luke, do you get that <laughs> reference? You're the only other millennial here. Um <laughs> Okay, so this, for, this is a great game. I love it. Let's, I, this let's, game is much better than trivia. Scott, this podcast got a broken leg, and it ain't ain't ever gonna run the Kentucky Derby again. You know what time it is. Let's take this podcast out to the glue factory and get our review on. <laughs> Scott, on a scale of one to ten, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, right episode five of the chosen. We are on episode five, right? Yes, there was so much more about this episode that I didn't like than what I did. Um, I was disappointed in this episode, and I think there's some... I, I, I try to remember they're still trying to build these characters. They're still trying to, uh, um, you know, tell a narrative for, for things these characters will be doing in future episodes. But the whole wedding feast, I was terribly troubled by. Um, I just do not think that's the, the biblical... Uh, with the wine, I mean, it just, it just, I did not like it. I did not like it at all. Uh, I think for that reason, I'm going to give it a five this week. That is our very first rotten rating from anyone. I thought your first episodes were like the pilot episode was no, bad. no, we gave the uh, the reviews a six, both of Ooh. us. Yeah, okay, I think we, we gave. We gave one trailer a four, but the other one, it averaged out to a six. Yeah. So I, I agree. I didn't like the drunkenness part. Um, the rest of it, I didn't have a, you know, there's the weird scene with the, the whole thing of Mary convincing him. But at the same time, I felt like it was, it was difficult to, to know what's going on there as we discussed. Uh, I didn't like it as much as the last episode that I saw, even though this one didn't have the creepy dove, but the fish um, really 
gave the last episode, the first episode, a boost in my mind. Um, and Nicodemus. Fish? Fish, yes. Uh, so I, I gave this a, a seven. I... I am going to give it a six. Now, if you listen back to this podcast, I didn't have a lot wrong with it. I mean, I enjoyed most of it. Really, no problems across the board. Um, I was very neutral and level-headed about this entire thing. I didn't. I didn't think Mary was a nag. I didn't think that we were talking about John (laughs) three instead of John two. I, uh, didn't have a problem with the drunkenness. I didn't have a problem with the fact that they gave Thomas only one note. I didn't have a problem with a lot of stuff. Okay, look, this episode was not good. It wasn't good, especially compared to the last two. The episode three, I gave a 10. Episode four, I gave an eight. I'll give this one a six just because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There were a few good moments. The moment where Jesus was talking to Thomas was really good. Uh, the moment where, uh, uh, where Peter or Simon comes up to Jesus afterwards and is convinced by the miracle is really good. The humanizing jokes that Jesus is, Jesus tells is really good. And for that reason alone, I don't want to give it a rotten rating. You should still give this show a chance and keep watching it. It's not enough to stop. It's not enough to say, uh, okay, I'm done. So we average a six for the week. Well, there you have it, folks. Like I said at the beginning of the show, if you're playing the banker in Monopoly, someone lands on a question mark, you should give them a chance. Give this show a chance. (laughs) And if you ever see a movie on Lifetime called I Am Gabriel about a grandfather (laughs) and a granddaughter... You should run the other way. Don't, don't, don't flee from that temptation, dear listeners. (laughs) Dear listeners. (laughs) Well, for Scott, for Luke, and my name is Zach, this has been Rotten or Righteous. I hope you'll come back next week. Luke will still be here. So, we'll have... (laughs) Truly, I don't easy. know. I don't, I don't know no. if I can come back after this. No, you're going to be back. You just signed a contract. You didn't realize it after that last comment with the grandpa and the granddaughter. I'm never letting you get out of this. That was hilarious. We're going to go up from 10, view, 10 listeners to 30 listeners at least. This was probably the funnest recording I've ever had. I will say that, though. Hopefully you enjoyed you had, it a little bit. You had a good time on your end, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>